Live from the Bunkhouse Saloon in downtown Las Vegas, Nevada, this is Bunkhouse! and then we're going to get into the show. Um, number one, it's called Bug House because in Washington Square Park in 1911, radicals, uh, anarchists, free thinkers, and insane people would get up on soapboxes in Washington Square Park in Chicago and would debate the issues of the day. And it was revolutionary at that time. It was amazing. The country was completely polarized. Well, then in the 50s, Studs Terkel, and if you don't know who Studs Terkel is, look it up. Studs Terkel is an amazing journalist from Chicago who he kind of reinvented Bug House Square, because that's what they called Washington Square Park. They called it Bug House Square because Bug House is a pejorative for a mental hospital, because people are nuts that do this. Well, it's 2019, and we are more polarized than ever, right? We can't argue without screaming at each other, so David Kimmel and I at LetterDave.com decided that we would do what anybody normal would do if you had the bug house thing, and we'd do a show. We've been running the show for about two years in Chicago. We've been running the show here in Vegas since April. It is an opportunity to have the art of the dialectic. What that means is that every performer tonight was assigned a topic by me, and none of them got to decide either the topic nor the side of the topic they're debating. They are assigned it. So whether they believe it or not, they've got to make a convincing case. Each performer will have seven minutes to make their case. And then Tim, there he is. You will decide who makes the most persuasive case on each topic. Here are three topics that we will hear tonight. Topic number one, debated by Matthew Munoz and Jessica Pena. Ethical boycotting is a myth. Okay, so ethical boycotting is not a myth. And uh, thank you for coming. I'm just kidding. Um, so <laughs> this upcoming year, we have uh, Generation Z coming into the 2020 election. It's people aged from 18 to 23, and this is going to be the first time that they're able to vote. Uh, they'll account for 1 in 10 of the voters, and they're the most diverse generation that has been able to vote yet. 50% are a non-white population, and they're most comfortable with changing norms. They're informed on social issues, and uh, they're generally anti-Trump. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and, um, and they're the generation that all other previous generations has failed. Um, pretty much as children, they've spoken out so far against gun violence, the opioid epidemic, um, they fought for trans rights, and uh, they've even voiced their concerns about climate change because of the beginnings of it that they're um, experiencing. Um, they've survived the Great Recession, um, the changing climate, fake news, and mass shootings. They're here to vote, and they're pissed off. I mean, who wouldn't be? Um, of those one in 10 voters, my oldest daughter, She'll be 18 next year, and she's going to be able to vote. She's mixed race, she's female, and she's gay. So she, she, she's part of the Pride Alliance in school. Um, I've walked with her in the Pride parades, and she wants to go out there, and she wants to fight for love, basically. We're allowed, we're allowed here in Nevada to get married. Thank you. But the funny thing is, is though, like, she's, she's ready to vote, but um, she doesn't have her permit yet, but she's registered to vote. And she says that she's ready, but there's still at times like, like I have to remember, or, to, or I have to remind her to roll down the window when she says she's hot in the car. Like, she's still a kid. These are the things that, you know, like a mom is like, just, just roll down the window if you're hot. Like, why do I have to tell you? And so, and so there's, there's things that, you know, you're a little bit concerned about. And when I'm driving in the car with my kids, I'll often tell them about the argument that Dawn's assigned to me. 
I'm a big nerd and I like homework and they like, <laughs> they like to help me with my arguments. So when I was telling them about the ethical boycott and whether or not um, we're able to ethically boycott brands, um, we decided to have a little experiment, the consumer ethics experiment, she called it. And um, what we wanted to test out is whether or not we were able to uh, not fund any of the Trump campaign with our, with our money from our bank. And uh, <laughs> while we were discussing this in the car, I also have two other children and they're a little bit younger. And the middle one, we had just gotten off of school and she's like hungry, 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 <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so like, while I'm talking about this, she's like, can we stop at Taco Bell? I'm like, we can't stop at Taco Bell because they fund the Trump campaign. And she's like, but steak quesadillas. And I'm like, we can't, now they're hate quesadillas. Like, come along with me, Anna. Come on, you can do this. And she's like, but I love quesadillas. So anyways, we didn't stop and she's on board. And then another thing, my son, he's my youngest, is, I'm sorry, Don, if this messes up with your argument, he's a big Marvel fan. Yeah. But wouldn't you know who puts money towards the Trump campaign is Marvel and Disney. I'm sorry to ruin the night. <laughs> but I found this all out through the, uh, uh, it's a website called grabyourwallet.com. And it was started um, after the release of the Access Hollywood tape. We all know the one and what he said, it doesn't really need repeating. But it was two women who had met on an online forum and decided that they also didn't want to put their money towards anybody who talks like that or anybody who spreads that kind of hate. And um, so they, they started an online, um, and it just lists all the companies that they're currently boycotting and the ones that have been taken off of the list. And it's not just saying, you know, don't shop here forever. It, it gives information as to who to contact, you know, you tell them to be respectful when they're contacting them. And not only that, but it gives actionable items for those people to be taken off of that list. So um, in the news most recently, there's been a boycott against uh, Stephen Ross, who runs uh, SoulCycle. I don't know if you guys have heard about it, but it's a, a luxury fitness and it's not like I go there or anything. <laughs> so I, I couldn't really tell my kids, oh, we're not gonna go to Soul Fitness today, guys. But, you know, that's, that's the thing is that he doesn't just have his, his money going towards the fund, uh, to fund the Trump campaign for that. He also owns um, the Miami Dolphins. And so uh, that's another thing too. Um, what, what sucks about that is that he's holding this a uh, fundraiser for Trump, and it's, I want to say, like $100,000 a ticket. And he is from Florida, where the Parkland kids, with the mass shootings, and you're going to hold a campaign, you know, in the Hamptons for this guy, you know, to, to help him. It just, it, just, I'm out of my mind. <laughs> it's crazy. And, and another thing, not only that, but um, with everything with Nike that had happened and with Kaepernick and him kneeling and, and making a statement and going out there, there was another player also who was on the Miami Dolphins um, who also knelt during the national anthem. And it's blue, so it's kind of hard to see his name, but it's uh, Kenny Stills. And he was the one who found out about uh, the, the fundraiser and he put it out there. So I don't know whether or not it's gonna affect, you know, he, he was the one that uh, Trump had told to shut up and play. So it's these type of people who are, are funding these hate campaigns. And he's gone out there and he's defended himself saying that he, he pays for both sides. He's paid money towards the Democratic Party. He's paid towards the Republican Party. But we can't do that anymore. You can't just throw money at these people and throw money at these people. You have kids who are coming into you know, society basically already you know, failing. And it's because of everybody else. And so we have to do something. And so. Instead of putting my money towards all of these, you know, companies, um, pretty much by the end of the weekend, we had gone through the whole list. You know, you can't even go to Goodwill. I mean, they don't, they don't fund Trump, but there's this whole other thing about boycotting. You really, it's, you, you've got to decide, you know, what you're willing to put your money towards because all of the, <laughs> all of corporate America is just fucked. You know, <laughs> I mean, I, I wish there was a nicer way to say it, but Really, if you just stay at home with your kids and you make your own fucking steak quesadillas, you'll be better off. Thank you. Yeah. All right.
Jessica Pena, give her a hand. Give her a hand, come on. Argument in favor of ethical boycotting, it is not a myth. Now the counter to that argument, ladies and gentlemen, Matthew Munoz, give him a hand, come on. Tell that he's not for ethical boycotting because she had a piece of paper and he has a laptop. <laughs> Apple. <laughs> that was very beautifully done. I I think you should work for NPR. <laughs> Honestly, I was like, I think she sounds like she works for public radio. Um, very beautifully stated. Uh, Talking about um, Walt Disney, that racist motherfucker. Um, like, who didn't? Who's gonna take down Walt Disney? By the way, uh, maybe. <laughs> but um, I just wanted to make a little distinction right now uh, in my um, unethical laptop. Um, I'm not arguing against protests. I'm not arguing against Tiananmen Square. I'm not talking about Muhammad Ali protesting the Vietnam War. Not talking about the 1963 March on Washington. I'm talking about boycotting. I'm talking about chicken sandwiches. I'm talking about racist, bigoted chicken sandwiches. Talking about sneakers. I'm talking about not going to Hawaii on your vacation. Talking about these kind of things. All right? Talking about spandex. Your spandex wearing ass. Um, your freaking stationary bike. Some little wiener dog telling you to move your arms and your ass. Anyway, because I knew that we were going to talk about it, let's talk about Chick-fil-A and those chicken sandwiches. This bigoted ass chicken. Chick Chicken's disgusting anyways. I don't like it. Nervous chickens are locking up in cages, getting all nervous and they're putting all these antibiotics in these chickens and they're giving them Prozac. All that shit's getting in your brain, making crazy things. But I knew we were talking about it. We're talking about this racist son of a bitch. Fucking Dan Cathy. His grandfather made some amazing chicken back in the day who got on his grill and got real famous because he's been doing it for 40 years. And trust me, 40 years ago, you had that chicken, you probably would have died in your arms tonight. You would have fell on the floor in an orgasmic, mouth-filled, wonderful night of wonderful night. You would have forgot about sex. You would have been like, dang, this chicken sandwich. It's, my cheeks are like, chicken sandwich. That didn't hurt the brand at all. Let me tell you what happened. This bigot motherfucker coming out against the LGBTQ community, he was like trying to fund these anti-groups. And all these people were like, hey, don't do that, dirty son of a bitch. Like, we don't, we don't like what you're trying to do. And you know what happened? You know what happened in 2012 when this bigot motherfucker came out and did that? What happened? This group of Americans in the world, so apathetic as they are, grew the company 12%. They're like, oh, racist chicken, bigot chicken. Uh, oh shit, I'm hungry. I need some waffle french fries. I'm gonna go get some waffle french fries. Um, I'm very hungry. I, wait, what happened? Oh, this bigot chicken. Uh, my mouth is watering. I, this is delicious. It's giving my throat an orgasm. I, I can't handle myself right now. This is wonderful shit. <laughs> it grew the company 12% and made every one of the found those fucking bigots 12% richer. And the, the, the company rose to 4.6 billion. It's actually one of the most uh, successful franchises that exists right now. And actually, while this was happening, I lived in Hollywood, 
and down the block from me, I'm like, that's the most livable place ever, because I voted in Hollywood, and I walked up there uh, during the election. No one was in the Republican line. Zero people in the Republican line. None. You know how many people were in the Chick-fil-A line? 175. Counted. They were all in line, waiting for that delicious throat orgasm. Not, they're not, it's, it's apathy, man. It's, it's bigger than everything, you know? And let's, actually, brands do this on purpose. They do it with a, a purpose. And they've been doing it for a long ass time. So if you, take, if you think about a smart marketer, there was this like really shitty movie that came out in 2009. It was called, uh, I Hope They Serve Beer in Hell. And it was about, written by Tucker Max, and he was just like this, fucking sexist piece of shit. And like, the marketers of that movie didn't have much money of a budget, so they went out and they, uh, they promoted the movie by inciting mommy bloggers, and they, they pretended to be mommy bloggers to get people riled up to protest the movie. And the protest, in turn, actually bolstered uh, the movie's performance. I mean, it was a piece of crap, so there wasn't much they could do. However, let me give you two other examples. Let's talk about Nike, the most smartest marketer on the planet. These piece of shit shoes that are manufactured in Taiwan fall apart after six months, and they're crap. However, this is the most profitable shoe brand that exists. They only backed Colin Kaepernick because they knew people were going to get pissed off and up in arms. You know what happened the day after that Ka Kaepernick commercial came out? That brand rose 25%. 25% sales online for two days. Stock dropped like one point for two days, and then it rose. And everybody is uh, celebrating Nike at this point for their great uh, philanthropic attitude. Conversely, let's look at it the other side, right? Adidas. Uh, Kanye went West, went Kanye West. Crazy went crazy, crazy, crazy. Dude went crazy, he put a Make America Great Again hat again. He's like, I hate myself, but I'm gonna go buddy up to, uh, to the second from the, the devil's teeth. You know what happened to Adidas? There's on uh, the Yeezys, on the StockX. StockX is this place where you can uh, buy sneakers, sell sneakers like stocks. They profit or lose value based on the value of the sneakers. You know how many Yeezys? Yeezys went up in value 25%. Same exact percentage that Nike went up. It didn't matter. People thought about it, they're like, oh fuck, I forgot to buy my Yeezys. Just like I forgot to buy my Nikes. Just, be, just like I forgot to buy my waffle cut french fries. Point is, I got one minute. No, not really. Oh, I heard a bell. And now you're gonna have two. All right. There's a lot of pointless things out there. I'm gonna round them off. Number one, Hawaiian tourism. People were trying to boycott Hawaiian tourism because they blocked Donald Trump's move to uh, you know, stop Muslims from coming to America. And a lot of bunch, bunch of dumbasses got on Twitter and were like, hey, what does is, what is, uh, Hawaii know about being invaded? We had 9-11. And I was like, have you heard of a little known history event called the bombing of Pearl Harbor, you dumb fuck? <laughs> Starbucks. These, these people get boycotted every fucking year. Every goddamn year. Because of a cut. It wasn't Christmassy enough. And they came out and they said, hey, Starbucks cups are not Christmassy enough. There's no Santa. There's no Christmas on there. They, move, they removed Christ from these Starbucks Christmas cups. 
You know how many years they've been boycotted? They've been boycotted in 2015 because they were just red cups and they had a Starbucks that that little mermaid slut on the front of the Starbucks cup. They don't care about the mermaid slut. It's okay if the mermaid slut's on there with their legs up in the air. It's fine if there's, if there's a Santa Claus behind it. 2016, same shit. 2017, 2018. I can't wait to see what we're gonna boycott next this year for Christmas. It's part of the fun. All right, Jessica's gonna come up. You have an opportunity. We have three questions. If you have a question for either or both, let me know. Anybody get a question? I do. All right, ask your question, please. I have a question for Matthew. Matthew, have you ever tried to boycott something in a similar way that Jessica did with her family? Have you ever tried to boycott? Have you ever boycotted something yourself? Yes, I stopped buying guinea pigs when I was a child. <laughs> because I, I feel like guinea pigs when they have their lab coats and they walk into a, a lab, like they don't know what's gonna happen, but they're about to be experimented on. Okay, like they, so he boycotted guinea pigs. Any other questions for either Jessica or Matthew? Anybody? I got one. All right, bring it up. Uh, Jessica, um, how do you feel about RBG uh, saying uh, that Kavanaugh was, uh, I think it was a very fine man, or a very nice man. Uh, would you see that shirt is not ethically consumed? Okay, so, you're asking whether or not I think that the I agree shirt. with her. I'm saying I'm saying that the, that since she has a you know she mm. says that a person who is you know rapist and all that uh, right. we're on the same that he's here. a very nice man uh, that he's a nice guy and that she enjoys working with him. Would you say that that shirt is like? Do you feel comfortable wearing that shirt and then also representing that uh, that point? I feel like she was just being polite. All right. There you go. All right, just being polite. Any other questions? Question. All right, bring it. Okay, uh, this is for both. Of this you. is from Tim, by the way. So he's Yay! deciding the issue. So Tim, ask your question. Uh, both of your arguments are making it very hard for you to make a decision. So my question is, what do both of you see as the net effect of boycott? What is the net effect of boycott, Jessica? So net effect, I'm I'm sure that our purchases over the weekend really isn't going to affect the Trump campaign, but I feel like more effectively it's going to affect my kids and, you know, how, how they see how I'm politically involved and also involved in them, you know, them and their futures. So. All right. What is the, where'd you go? Net effect, Matthew. The net effect is plus 25% <laughs> in revenue. And that many more people knowing about this product and this racist-ass chicken. <laughs> All right, there are questions and debates. Give them both a hand. Tim, if you want to explain your decision, you can, but you do not have to. Who wins this debate? Uh, <laughs> yeah, you thought this was going to be easy. You came out here. You're probably not going to pay your 10 bucks at this point because you're just like, fuck you, you made me work. If I'm basing this solely off of the arguments I'm presenting today, that's the idea. Erasing my biases and my already—I have opinions on everything. Yeah. Uh, I have an opinion on this issue, but I'm going to say ethical boycott is not a myth. Not a myth. Jessica Pena wins the argument. Give her a hand. Give back your hand. Second topic, debated by Tanny Frywald and Pearson Brown. The cover of the book is the best way to judge it. Um, first of all, I'd like to thank Don and the Literate for this grand opportunity to uh, be participating in a bug house debate. Oh, and to you, dear judge, <laughs> I just want to give you a little heads up. And when I say heads up, I mean the big head and the little head, wink, wink. Uh, I just want you to know I can, uh, no, I will. 
I will sacrifice what little I have left of my virtue if it means I win. <laughs> of course, I may be a little confused because I thought the Me Too movement meant, hey, save some room on that casting couch for Me Too! <laughs> but I digress. The question, the question I will be answering this evening is the cover, the best way to judge a book, can be addressed from two perspectives. There's the literal perspective that says, of course, the cover is the best way to judge a book. Why else would the publishing industry put so much effort and resources into designing book covers if it wasn't to influence your judgment when it came to selecting a book? Then there's the metaphorical perspective of judging books by their covers, and that usually goes something like, nasty people look nasty, and nice people look, well, nice. We'll save the metaphorical for later. Let's start with the literal. Jane Austen famously said, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a reader in possession of a lot of free time and an expendable income must be in want of a new book to read. Well, let's play a little imagination game. Let's imagine Jane is stranded at Heathport Airport, she, uh, Heathrow Airport. Um, maybe it's because protesters in Hong Kong have closed down that airport, and she has no idea how long she's going to be there. So what's a gal to do except wander into the nearest bookstore and fulfill her own prescient adage? But with all those shelves groaning with hundreds and hundreds of books, how's our gal going to pick a book to read? Well, most likely, she will make her selection based on the cover. The cover's going to be full of information that will be useful to her, and the very first information she'll run into is the genre. You know what I mean. Nonfiction, uh, self-help books, uh, that sort of thing. They usually display the picture of the author as the expert. <laughs> and there'll be bold, blocky fonts all around them. Whereas literary novels usually have a wispy, cursive font, and sometimes a very impressionistic picture. When the author's name and title are in big, bold letters splashed across a representation of what's in the book, you can be pretty sure you've got an adventure tome in your hands, or a thriller. And when it comes to romance novels, there'll be a man, there'll be a woman, maybe both, maybe two women and a man, maybe two women, maybe two men. Well, you know what I mean, but anyway, they'll all be locked in a passionate gaze and maybe even an embrace or some other semi-pornographic position. In the end, the book cover, the books themselves, are the result of a lot of deep thought, artistry, technical business maneuvering, and hard work all designed so you can be reasonably assured the cover is literally the best way to judge a book, especially in the here and now, where books like The Miracle of Mindfulness tell us we should all be anyway. Now, for the metaphorical. Science, as it turns out, has, as it is often wont to do, proven pretty definitively that you can and probably should rely on the cover to judge a book, at least when the book cover is a heterosexual male and the judgment is being made by a heterosexual female. <laughs> In 2006, researchers at the University of Chicago showed 39 male subjects side-by-side -side pictures of an infant face and an adult face and asked the man which face they preferred. The men who chose the infant face were identified as having more interest in children and nurturing than the men who chose the adult face. 
All the men were also measured uh, for testosterone levels with a simple saliva test, which somebody help me and give me some water. I needed my saliva. Oh, Hurry. Thank you. <laughs> when the men had indicated their preference, um, the 39, oh, pictures were taken of the 39 men after they'd made their selection. And those pictures were sent halfway across the country to the University of California at Santa Barbara, where 29 females were asked to rate the men on whether or not they thought they had an interest in children. And as it turns out, way past what would be random statistics, women were always able to identify the men who chose the infants. The women then were asked uh, which males they found attractive. And based on their pre-test interview, if the woman said that she was interested in a long-term relationship, she inevitably picked the face of a man who liked children. If she was interested in a short-term relationship, she chose a man who had higher testosterone levels. And yes, a woman can tell men with higher testosterone levels because of a strong jaw and a solid brow line, and that represents good health and virility. The women were then asked which men they found attractive. And uh, unfortunately, with the jaw and the brow line, uh, this particular study didn't include any assessment of the relationship of feet, noses, or hands. So I'm sorry, Mr. President, we cannot assess your prowess based on these statistics. However, we can be reasonably assured that you can judge a book, or a man for that matter, by their cover. And I understand what, it's 2019, so sometimes you've got to provide a trigger warning. So I'm just providing, I don't even know what the trigger is. I pulled it. But I know, but I, well, but I know who this next, I know this next performer, and I know that his potential for mayhem is quite amazing. So that, I don't know if that's a trigger warning or not, but ladies and gentlemen, Pearson Brown, give him a hand. know this or not, but uh, debates are fucking bullshit. <laughs> I didn't know this was fucking wrapped around it, sorry. My bad, I'm gonna fuck up your recording. <laughs> so debates, they're fucking stupid. They don't prove anything, they don't show anything. No one's ever changed their mind because of a debate. It's a bunch of neoliberal bullshit. And uh, I could tell you all day, all night, different ideas and different reasons why you can't just judge someone, but there's a lot of telling going on and not enough showing. So I think it'd be smart if we did a little bit of showing. One second. I got a lot of things in here. Um, what's your name again, Judge? Come on up here, Jim. Him. Now, uh, will you pour me two glasses of water? <laughs> that's enough. Yeah, that's good. Alright, have some water, buddy. Is that water? It's refreshing. Is it water, though? Refreshing vodka. 
actually tequila. But how do you know it's not water, though? It's in a water package. It doesn't taste like water. So you're saying just because it looks like water doesn't mean it's water. All right, all right, all right. Well, fair enough. Go, go take a seat. Take the, take the drink with you. That's yours, man. No, take a seat right there. Not the whole bottle. That's mine, but I'm fucking pour it out here. All right, now uh, give me one second. Uh, Jesus Christ. I gotta grab something. Um, so, uh, Slim, you ever uh, thought about any surgeries? Any uh, touch-ups? I mean, I've never had a major surgery in my life. Well, uh, maybe tonight's your night. Um, now, uh, give me one second. Uh, I'm gonna tell you a little about myself, and then you can decide what you think. Just give me a second. One second. Jesus Christ. Oh, I'm so sorry. Fuck. One second. Fuck. How do I fucking get this? Oh, Jesus Christ. I'm so sorry, guys. I did not mean to cut myself. Fuck. Oh. No, no, we're good. We're good. We're good, bud. Oh, we're all good. Oh, yeah. We're just going to wrap that up. Don't worry, I brought bandages for a reason, you know? Shit can be messy, so, uh... Just gonna... Alright, that's good. So as I was saying, uh, I'm gonna tell you a little bit about myself, and uh, we'll figure out if you want to do a little surgery, alright? Um, I've dropped out of community college three times. Um, the last time I was at a hospital was for alcohol poisoning, and uh, I bought these scrubs at a Goodwill. Um, I'm not a surgeon or a doctor, although I'm sure I look like some of your physical therapists, um, but I'm willing to give it a try if you are. Um, so I brought some items. Got this. Um, you ever heard of uh, that show, Nick Tuck? I was thinking we could trim it up a little bit, maybe a little rhinoplasty, alright? We can do something, alright? We'll, we'll figure it out. What, what do you think about that, bud? I think I'm gonna pass. Why are you gonna pass? Uh, I don't feel like you're a doctor. But... I'm wearing the fucking scrubs. I'm wearing the scrubs. I got the gloves. I got the tools. Why am I not a doctor? Because uh, you didn't go to medical school? But I'm like about the age of someone who would have gotten out of medical school recently. You know, I, I hit the age range. I'm a young white man. I could very possibly be well off. Uh, I want to prep up. Yeah. How do you know that I'm not a doctor? Because I have the outfit. Uh, I mean, if I'm being fair, you're kind of demonstrating not doctor-like behaviors over here. So would you say that just because I look the part That, that's a strong possibility. <laughs> well, I'm a woman of science, so... I loved all my opponents' facts and statistics, but uh, this is a real science experiment on stage right now. And I think uh, I proved my point. You can go. Thank you. Come on up. Oh my god. Our, I, I, Tim, I gave you a trigger warning. That's all I can say. Any questions for either Pearson or Tanny? So are you a doctor? Are you a doctor? I'm assuming that's to Pearson. 
I'm actually a painter and a sculptor. If you want to check out my shit, just ask me and I'll show you to my Instagram. Any other questions? I have a question. Yes. Uh, did Pearson, did you go, uh, how, what grade did you get in biology class? Pearson, what grade did you get in biology? I actually am really good at uh, schoolwork. I just kind of hate it. Uh, that's why I dropped out so many times. But I got a B plus because I don't believe in busy work. <laughs> All right, one more question. Anybody? Tim! You're the first judge that we've had to be brought up on stage. So, Tim, who won this debate? Uh, Remember who gave you that drink, bro? <laughs> it's a little tough. Uh, I think there's some good points made on both sides. Um, I am going to say the cover is not the best way to judge the book. Pearson Brown wins the match. Give them both a hand. And the third topic, and probably the most important, culturally, politically, and in all ways, debated by Jared Keene and myself, who is the best billionaire superhero, Bruce Wayne or Tony Stark? Patient history, Bruce Wayne. I'm gonna get the light, there you go. Following his witnessing the murder of his parents, the child became obsessed with revenge on all he deemed to be of the criminal class. In service of his obsession, the boy trained in various martial arts, skills of surveillance, subterfuge, deception, and detecting expertise. As he grew into adulthood, his mania manifested in creating camouflaged armor complete with mask slash helmet and a black cape, and roamed the streets looking for criminals to beat up and apprehend, often seriously injuring these suspected thugs. Living two completely different lives with two distinct personalities, the subject was on one hand Bruce Wayne. Billionaire, billionaire, playboy, philanthropist, playing the role of businessman, sexual partner to a number of women who all happen to have alliterative names, and the life of the party. On the other hand, he was known as Batman, humorless, brilliant, and brutal. Diagnosis? Mr. Wayne is either schizophrenic, severely bipolar, or a borderline psychopath, obsessive-compulsive with the tendency towards split personality and antisocial behavior. Bingo. <laughs> Patient history, Tony Stark. Driven hard by his overachiever father, the subject rebelled by using his family money to be a party boy, a drunk, and a philanderer. Being brilliant on the level of technological genius, once his father died, the subject took over the family business and created extraordinarily effective instruments of war until he was kidnapped and took shrapnel dangerously close to his heart. In captivity, he created and constructed a suit of mechanized armor, escaped his captors, and had a moment of clarity as an adult that informed his decision to cease weapons manufacturing and improve upon his armor in order to protect people from those corporate entities and individuals who utilize technology, technology to enrich themselves while harming others. Initially fabricating a fiction that this suit of armor was his bodyguard, his ego and need for approval, approval ultimately resulted in his disclosing that he was the suit of armor and thus created a transparency of who he was and whom he was helping. Diagnosis, Mr. Stark, is a narcissist with a substance abuse problem typical of 75% of American males and 100% of the two men debating this topic. <laughs> the Batman started out as Birdman in 1939. At that time, Bill Finger and Bob Kane removed guns and killing from his repertoire. In the mid-1950s, 
Frederick Wortham testified that Bruce's relationship with his ward, Dick Grayson, was homosexual in nature, which led to Batman becoming a ladies' man in both his personas and less a detective and more science fiction hero. By the 1980s, Frank Miller's xenophobic, hyper-Republican Bruce Wayne created a psychotic break from the Batman of the past. Not only did he suddenly have guns, his aversion to killing was eliminated. This led to Bruce Wayne being split into many personalities. Adam West, <laughs> Michael Keaton, Val Kilmer, George Clooney, Christian Bale, and finally, the shame of Ben Affleck. Bruce Wayne gradually had more fucking personalities and faces than Sally Field and Sybil. Batman was a political assassin. In 1988, in Batman number 420, Batman murdered KGB Beast to save Ronald Reagan. Batman can kind of be stupid. In 1961's Batman number 147, a mad scientist ray gun turns Batman into an infant who decides to continue fighting crime under the guise of Bat-Baby. A four-year-old Batman who says at one point, Robin, I never thought there'd be a time when you'd have to carry me in your arms like a baby. Batman is fucking nuts with his fucking nuts. In All-Star Batman and Robin number seven, he had the opportunity both to, to both sadistically murder thugs and fuck with his cape on when Black Canary turns up on, on some docks to take on some criminals. They prove too much for her, so she hides behind some crates. Luckily, Batman arrives to save her brutally pummeling the thugs and setting them all on fire with a bottle of bleach. Not content, he continues to beat the lowlifes as they burn alive, which interestingly turns on Black Canary until she leaps from her hiding place and into his arms as the men fry to death behind them. The superheroes celebrate by bumping uglies with their masks on because, you know, is just fucking better that way. <laughs> On the other hand, Tony Stark has pretty much always been Tony Stark. And there's only one face on screen, Robert Downey Jr. While the suit has changed and been upgraded, the man underneath has always been pretty consistent. Flaws and all, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a bit of an authoritarian and tends to build killer robots from time to time, but he always ends up defeating his creations, and the worst thing he's ever done in the comics is build roller skates into his suit. Stupid, but not as fucking stupid as Bat-Baby, okay? In the end, Bruce Wayne has more in common with John Wayne Gacy or Charles Manson, while Tony Stark has more in common with Richard Branson or Elon Musk. And a billionaire Charlie Manson in a fucking cape driving an armed vehicle is some scary shit. Thank you. And now, to defend the honor of Wayne Manor, Jared King, give him a hand. Bat baby, that's gonna be hard. Okay. <laughs> Bruce Wayne versus Tony Stark isn't worth sending up the bat signal. The only reason this debate isn't laughable is due to the magnetic, the mag magnetism of Robert Downey Jr. Because of Downey and the fact that he has defined the cinematic role of Tony Stark since Iron Man hit the silver screen in 2008, he's made the Golden Avengers secret identity a household name. So yes, I credit Downey. 
you know, for uh, making Stark a character that interests millions of yavs, uh, including I bet, and sorry to get personal, uh, your poor mother who yearns to send Downey a care package. <laughs> That's all Downey gets because now I'm talking comic books, the primary source material, the literary graphic canon, in which Tony Stark is a tinfoil asshat compared <laughs> to the dark, brooding, wounded, compelling majesty that is Bruce Wayne. <laughs> yes, Bruce Wayne is a superior industrial billionaire over Tony Stark for four reasons. Let me break it down. First, Bruce Wayne's wound, his traumatic origin, is more fascinating than Stark's. Second, Bruce Wayne's supporting cast is second to none. Robin, sidekick, who evolves into a superhero, Nightwing. Wayne's butler, Alfred Pennyworth, and Wayne's sometimes good, often criminal girlfriend in a skin-tight cat suit named Selena, Selena Kyle, no alliteration. Third, Wayne Industries tech is more fun and less destructive than whatever Stark incompetently designed. And finally, Wayne never makes the kind of mistake that results in property damage, and he displays serious game with women. Stark's mishaps are Fukushima grade and often the source of conflict in Marvel Comics. I mean, Stark served as a government stooge in the Civil War storyline. Uh, and worse, he lost the beautiful pepper pots, if you remember, not to Dr. Doom, but to his own chauffeur, Happy Hogan, in Tales of Suspense 91, 1967, let that sink in, cucked by the chauffeur. <laughs> Consider Wayne's haunting, heartbreaking wound, leaving a movie theater from which he's just seen the mark of Zorro. Young Bruce and his parents take a dark alley shortcut to Alfred's car, right? Before they reach it, a common street thug, Steps out with a pistol, emerges from the shadows demanding money. Bruce's parents comply, but the robber's gun barrel catches Bruce's mother's pearls. When she struggles to step, step back, the thief catches her, point blank, right? Shoots uh, Bruce's father, then flees. Bruce watches his parents bleed out, expire. The trauma puts him on a journey unlike any other in comics. Bruce is unlike any other superhero. The Punisher is a cartoon. <laughs> What is Stark's origin? His rich parents died in a car crash when Stark was a teen. Stark then devotes his life to building life-saving automotive technology that saves millions of... No, I'm just joking about that last part. Stark is a shithead war profiteer who sells weapons to the South Vietnamese and becomes a playboy to cope with his loss. He only puts on the armor to save his own life after a botched sale in the jungles of Southeast Asia. Woof. You know what, that, that results in the, uh, that piece of shrapnel lodged against his heart, right? The armor keeps the shrapnel from killing him. Stark has a real wound, sure, but Bruce's damage is more interesting, visceral. A comics reader wonders, what would I do if I lost my parents in the way Bruce did? Would I train in martial arts, wear a cape and cowl to fight crime in the night? A comics reader feels for Bruce. His agony is our greatest childhood fear, to lose our parents. Iron Man's co-creator Stan Lee basically says Stark was meant to be trashed when he said he based the character on Howard Hughes, a military industrialist who died a recluse in Las Vegas collecting his own urine in jars. <laughs> Compare supporting cast. Bruce has the boy wonder, the ultimate sidekick. Look up super si superhero sidekick in the dictionary. You'll find a picture of Robin. Who does Stark have? No one because he sucks as a friend. <laughs> A uh, war machine only suits up in the armor when Stark turns to the bottle in Iron Man 165 from 1983. Oh yeah, Stark is an alcoholic. Toast! <laughs> Bruce has Alfred, coolest man serving in the history of comics. In the comics, Iron Man has an Alfred knockoff, Edwin Jarvis, a Brit too, but frankly he isn't as useful as Alfred. Iron Man film, filmmakers knew Jarvis was bollocks, right? They came up with, uh, what was that thing? Just a rather very intelligent system, the AI uh, support, right? They should have gone with Jada, just another dumb acronym. <laughs> Does Pepper Stark's love interest match up against Selena Kyle? No, even when Gwyneth Paltrow plays Pepper, personal assistant to a self-destructive playboy who nearly gets her killed, there's no heat when she and Stark press against each other. Consider Catwoman and Batman in the comics. <laughs> All right, you want to talk film? Michelle Pfeiffer, a top prone Michael Keaton as she purrs and licks his face in Batman Returns 1992. Yes, that is a serious teenage Woody. <laughs> Stark, 
Stark has Stark. I got you. Stark has Stark Industries, publicly traded company that's like Blackwater, Enron, and Halliburton, minus the moral compass. Meanwhile, Bruce Wayne's Batcave is beneath Wayne Manor and can be accessed by blasting the Batmobile through a waterfall hologram at 100 miles per hour. How do you access Stark Industries R&D? By elevator. <laughs> Bruce Wayne's Batcave has a global surveillance command center, bat drone control hub that allows Batman to see. It's all designed to catch vi uh, villains, right? Uh, everything Bruce Wayne makes is designed to defeat evil. Everything stamped with the Stark Industries logo is produced to accidentally demolish entire city blocks. Behind the Christian gray veneer, Tony is Ted Bundy crossed with Bill Gates. <laughs> A little bit of that, El uh, that scent of Elon Musk, you know, with uh, a light orange dusting of, uh, you know, Donald Trump. <laughs> I punched too low on that one. <laughs> uh, okay, so in the back cave, we've got uh, all kinds of trophies from Bruce's best cases, right? The animatronic T-Rex, the giant replica of the Lincoln Penny oversized Joker playing card. Back cave is tech-ridden and homey the ideal nocturnal ruse for Bruce. That's because Tony is a genuine playboy. Bruce's playboy status is a disguise, a way of walking in plain sight. The cave, not a nightclub, is where Bruce feels comfortable. What man doesn't yearn for a cave full of giant screens, weapons, and special trophies? <laughs> All right, finally, Tony's terrible tech. Tony created Ultron, that went well. Tony's Hulkbuster armor, the Hulk walks away without a scratch, or ruined Metropolis smoking behind him. Tony's inability to rein in his tech is the source of problems and body counts. Look online, you'll find dozens of articles with titles like, Tony Stark is the true villain of the Marvel Comics universe. Wait until these social justice pop culture bloggers find out about the comics. They'll make Tony stand trial for, like, war crimes. Why did he sacrifice himself in Endgame? Tony had to repent for sucking so hard. All right, Wayne, meanwhile, always has an ace up his sleeve. He's got a shard of crypt kryptonite with which to stab Superman. I like that guy. Tony is baloney. Wayne is who men aspire to be, a vengeful assassin of the night. Only your mom thinks Stark is cool. True comics fans know Wayne is the winner. Yeah! Toast. Congrats. Any questions for either one of us? Yeah, that's why this was an obscure, like it was very obscure, but Can't we got it. Into it. <laughs> yeah, you know. I have a question. Yes. Uh, I have uh, one for Don. Okay. Uh, which Batman was the sexiest? <laughs> <laughs> In comics and movies. Oh, God. In comics, I would say the 1980s Batman was sexiest because of the blue. Yeah. And in movies, I would say the sexiest... It's got to be Michael Keaton. Rip Torn. Or, or Rip Torn. When, he, when Rip Torn did uh, Batman, yeah. Yeah, he's very sexy. Which, which is the sexiest Batman for you, young man? Uh, I would say Ray Liotta. <laughs> yeah, that one time he played him in Goodfellas. Yeah, when he was in the, the cow. That was a Batman movie. That was, it was. It was a Batman music movie. Any other questions? Tim! Batman, Iron Man, who wins this debate? Just so we're clear that there's no bias here, I am a strong Marvel devotee. Fair enough. <laughs> is my favorite space on the planet. <laughs> Batman is the best billionaire superhero. There you go. Jerry Keen wins the match. All right. Thank you very much. Did you enjoy the show? All right, if you enjoyed the show, you felt it was worth $10, you're gonna put my hat right down here at the edge of the stage. Make a point to come by and throw $10 in it if you enjoyed the show. If you didn't enjoy the show, don't give us anything. Absolutely, thank you, Dylan, for serving drinks. Come on. Tip the man for crying out loud because your good intentions don't pay his rent. That's gonna how it works. Thank you, Ryan Party, the Bunkhouse Saloon. Thank you.
you to all six of our performers. Give them a hand. And most importantly, thank you for coming out. You, you came out on a Monday night. You gave us, more importantly than your money, your time. I hope you enjoyed yourself. And if you did, trust me, your word of mouth, you're telling people, hey, Buckhouse is a fucking blast, is way more important than anything you can give us. So if in the next month, you say our next show is September 9th, it's Monday night, if you can tell three people, yeah, this is a good show and it's worth your time, tell those people. And finally, if you watch the show tonight and you went, yeah, I could do that. I could totally do that. I could do the shit out of that. Come talk to me, give me your email, and you will absolutely do this. Thank you very much. Have a great night.